0: Well, I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 9. Psalm 9, as we are continuing this series that we've been doing through the summer, and we're just going to do it through the summer, um, through the Psalms, starting with Psalm 1. Uh, and Then next Sunday is going to be our, our last psalm that we're going to do for our Summer of the Psalm series. We're actually coming to the end of a, a section that I think is really a, a good place for us to leave off with. Now, if you remember... Um, back several weeks ago when we, we talked about Psalm 1 and 2 being somewhat of the entryway or the gateway into the Psalms. They're kind of the introductory, if you will, about the, uh, the nature of the Psalms and what the psalmist is trying to communicate. And then when we began in Psalm 3, there is an inscription there. And so in many of our English Bibles, the, um, there's an inscription above verse 1. And those verses, or those inscriptions actually is part of the text, part of our inspired, inerrant, um, infallible, all sufficient text. In fact, in the Hebrew text, that's that's where verse 1 starts. And so if you were looking at a Hebrew text and you were looking at an English text, the verses would be off a little bit because the Hebrew text actually starts with verse 1 with the inscription. And beginning in Psalm 3, we saw this inscription about the psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And so the the context of that psalm comes when David is being excommunicated from his kingdom by his treasonous son. And of course, we learn that the reason that this uh, son causes this treason is, is really a consequence of David's own sin. When he sinned with Bathsheba, uh, when he killed Uriah, and then he was uh, approached by Nathan the prophet and called him to repentance. And then one of the consequences of that sin is that God was going to raise up out of his family an adversary, and Absalom is the result of that. And so, beginning with Psalm three all the way willing to Psalm ten, this all deals with the context of Absalom and his, um, you know, his time in Jerusalem and David's time on the run. And that all comes to an end here, beginning with this inscription in Psalm 9, which says, To the chief musician, to the tune of the death of a son. Or at least that's what my translation says. Some of you may actually have the Hebrew word there that transliterated that, but most people believe that it's to the tune, the death of a son. And then it goes, a Psalm of David. And so most likely that this psalm, Psalm 9, along with Psalm 10, has to do, uh, is precipitated, if you will, by the death of Absalom. It's a psalm of lament, but even in the mix of this lament, there is some praise for God's deliverance and his restoration back uh, to the kingdom. Now, I, I say that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are really kind of together in this. In fact, if you will look at the Psalm structurally, if you had the ability to do so, that, um, you will find that from Psalm 9, or Psalm 9 beginning verse 1, all the way to Psalm 10 and verse 18, that there is an acrostic pattern. And the acrostic pattern follows the Hebrew alphabet. So, for instance, beginning of Psalm 1 in, uh, Psalm 9 in verses 1 through 2, the very first letter of that verse starts with the Hebrew alphabet would would be comparable to our A, and then in the next section, it's the first uh, word starts with the letter B, and then that goes all the way down to Psalm ten, and we actually see that uh, transpiring more clearly in Psalm one nineteen. If you, like many of your editors in the uh, in your English Bibles have preserved that, you would see the uh, the. The, the word Aleph, and then Beit, and then Gimel, and Dale. Well, these are Hebrew alphabets. And so Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are composed that way. So I think they should be understood as one psalm for whatever reason, through the, the history of uh, manuscripts that these psalms were divided. But to your, to your good news, I'm not going to deal with them as one psalm. I'm going to break them up. Okay, so that's good news for you, and it's good news for me. So that means I get to just preach another psalm next week, and so that's that's going to be our, our kind of our conclusion for this summer series uh, next week with with Psalm 10. And so um, there is this psalm that we're going to be looking at. It's, as I said, I believe that it comes as out of the context of this trial with Absalom, and now Absalom is dead. And David is going to give praise to God that his enemies have now been destroyed. Now, if you'll notice that when we think about this psalm, and especially its emotion and its tone, that it is a psalm of lament. And it's a lament psalm for at least two reasons. Number one, David is lamenting the death of his son. Even though he's given praise to God that, his enemy is now dead, and he can go back to Jerusalem, and he's no longer on the run, this was still his son. And ultimately, the consequence of this was David's own sin. Because of his sin with Bathsheba, and because of Uriah, God had raised up a man out of his own household that became an adversity to him. But it's also a psalm of lament, because David also recognizes that just because one enemy has fallen doesn't mean that there's not other enemies on the horizon or that there's not other enemies that needs to be dealt with. And so he finds his strength and he finds his refuge in the fact that he knows that God will judge. His trust and his hope is deepened in the judgment of God. Now, that may sound a little bit unusual to you, that we can actually deepen our trust, that we can find hope and we can find comfort in the fact that God will judge. Because when we think about God's judgment, we think about God judging those people that may be in our life who have never trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And that brings us a great sorrow to know that one of these days there are going to be people that's going to be standing before the Lord Jesus Christ as a judge and he will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me. And so that is a grievous and sorrowful thing for us to think about, but at the same time, God will judge those people who have refused to reject him and who have sought to thwart his purposes. And that whatever judgment that God gives, that God judges right His judgment is never wrong. His judgment is always right. And maybe from a more abstract perspective, that we do want to see that God will indeed judge the evil. That God will indeed judge the evil. People who are committing great atrocities, who do not submit themselves to the lordship of Christ. We want to see that God will judge the evilness of the nations in all of this world. When we think about the the wickedness that's being personified every day in this country and in various places all over the world, yes, God, please judge. Judge these people. So there is hope and there is trust and there is comfort in knowing that God is a judge. And David, who knows the real sense of what it means to be oppressed, what it means to be persecuted, he takes hope and he takes comfort in a God who will judge. And I can just imagine that this may actually carry more weight for our brothers and sisters who are in countries that are facing persecution on a daily basis, whose government forbids them to worship like we get to worship, whose government puts them in prison for the sake of the gospel, and they find comfort in knowing that one of these days that God is going to judge those enemies, those people who persecute them, those people who oppressed him, God will judge them. And knowing this deepens their trust in him and their hope and their comfort that they can find in God. And so one of the things that I'm hoping to accomplish this morning is for us to Deepen our trust in God by knowing that Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. So as we begin looking at this text, I wanted to think about how it starts off in verses 1 through 2. It, it starts off with a determination to praise God with the fullness of his being. A determination to praise God with the fullness of our being. So look with me beginning in verse 1, it says, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will praise you with every fiber of my being, with all that was within me, I will praise you. I will tell of all of your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to the name most high. So in response to the distressing situation, the psalmist resolves to praise the Lord with his whole being. And the wholehearted praise is focused on God's revealed wonder. He says, I will tell of your marvelous works. Now, this may be connected to Psalm 8. As we see, the psalmist makes the statement about the Lord, how excellent is your name and all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. So maybe as he pondered the glory of God over the heavens of the earth and he sees the marvelous works of God. He praises God with every fiber of his being. Or perhaps then he's praising God because of his deliverance which is the focus of this psalm. It's precipitated by the death of Absalom. And God judging his enemies. And so maybe it is the psalmist who is praising God for his judgment. And, and the depth of the heartfelt praise is expressed with five synonymous verbs. Praise, tell, be glad, rejoice, and sing praise. And each of these verbs is used in the Hebrew language to convey determination. In other words, it was not spontaneous praise and not easy to praise praise. God in the context of a lament. And so here we have the death of his son, and, and David's being on the run. Yes, God has judged these enemies initially, but we're going to find out as this psalm develops that there are more enemies on the horizon. And so it's with determination. And really it's a sense in which the psalmist is actually calling himself, commanding himself to praise God with every fiber of his being. Now, the way that these verbs are used in the biblical language is, it's as though the praise is not coming natural. It's as though so he's having to force it. That's what I say mean by his determination, or him calling himself to praise the Lord. And I think that's something we need to be reminded of at times in the context of our life, and especially in our corporate worship, that sometimes we come and we do not feel like worshiping. We do not have the, the emotion, if you will, to worship. We, we have to dig deep within ourselves with determination and call ourselves and say, Corey, get with the program. You're before the living God today with the people of God. God is present in his word. Worship the living God. And so there is this determination that the, Psalm, this has because this is a lament song. So, in the context of his lament, he's digging deep and he's calling himself to worship God. I think I've told you this in, a, in another psalm that we talked about, but our worship cannot be dictated by our feelings because we never know what our feelings are going to be from one day to another. And there's going to be days that we, we come and we encounter God, whether we're encountering God in His Word, in our personal devotion time, but whether we're encountering God corporately together with His people, there are going to be days where you do not feel like worshiping God. But you cannot be dictated by your feeling. You have to be dictated by truth. And the truth is is that God is God. And He has marvelous works, and that's what the psalmist is doing. He's speaking truths. I will praise you with, the, with every fiber of my being, and I will tell of all of your marvelous works. These are truths. And so the psalmist must shake his trouble and exhort himself to praise the Lord in order to deepen his trust. And, and the use of these verbs for uh, praise, they identifies the intensity of the love for God. In fact, if you'll notice there that he says, I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. God is none other Then the marvelous whose name is Yahweh and who alone is most high. So when this title is used with respect to God and most high, it's saying there is none other like him. There is no one like God. He is unique. He is set above all things. And the content of the praise is based on truth, the nature of who God is and the acts of God, what he does. And when we begin to see the glory and the beauty of who God is and how he acts, it gives rise to praise, even in lament. Even when our feelings are not there, even when our emotions are not where they need to be, it will give rise to praise. And then the psalmist moves in verses 3 through 6 about how God judges the wicked. And so, you know, the psalm recounts the marvelous works of God. And one of the marvelous works of God is the downfall of his enemies. How God has judged his enemies. So verses 3 through 6 is about God's judgment of the wicked. So look with me in verse 3. It says, When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever You have destroyed cities, even their memories have perished. And so the Lord removes the immediate problem for David and ultimately all the enemies of the kingdom. And the enemies that we find in this text are turned back or they are no more. And in doing this, the Lord has vindicated the righteousness of David. And belief in God's justice is liberating because God is both our advocate and our judge. And for the New Testament believer, this rings so true and so near to us when we think about how it's applied to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, and verse 1, it says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that statement is given because John is speaking about his little children. He says, When you sin, remember that you have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the one who is the judge over all things, the one who is the judge of sin, for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, he is your advocate. And the advocate is also called righteous. Because that's who we need advocating on our behalf. We need someone who is righteous in a way that we are not. And Jesus Christ is the righteous one who is both our judge and our comforter and our advocate. And the judgment that's displayed in verses 3 through 4 is historical. And then the judgment that's demonstrated in verses 5 through 6 are prophetic, or maybe to say in another word, they're eschatological. It's judgment that's going to happen. So David is giving praise to God for his marvelous works, how he has judged his enemies now. But he also recognizes that there's coming a day when God's going to judge all of his enemies. Because David has many enemies. There's many enemies as it relates to his kingdom. There's the nations that surround all of Israel. And so it's not just the now that David's praising God for, but also how God will do his judgment you know throughout I've gotten to judge all people and the final result of judgment is that the enemies have been blotted out even their names they have been erased as though they have never existed so if you'll see there in verse 5 he tells them what God's going to do he's going to rebuke the nation he's going to destroy the wicked he's going to blot out their name for forever and ever And then in verse 6, O enemy, destructions are finished forever. It shows the encompassing nature, the encompassing work of God's judgment, that he will blot out forever, that he will destroy them and finish them forever and ever. And this word blot that's used in verse 5 is the same one that's used in Exodus 32 and verse 33, which says, And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. I don't think there can be anything worse for one to hear at judgment than to hear the words of Jesus saying, depart from me for I never knew you. Yet the one who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus can hold fast with the great comfort to the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, which says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his judgment. And so God judges the wicked. And then in verses 7 through 10, the psalmist tells us that the Lord's just rule is his people's hope. The Lord's just rule is his people's hope. So look with me in verse 7. But the Lord shall endure forever forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for all the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in time of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So because of this great judgment on on the enemies, The Lord has shown himself to be a righteous judge of the whole earth. In verse 7, we see that the Lord is enthroned forever. Though not always apparent, Yahweh, God, is exercising his kingship, ruling, and judging. In fact, that's one of the great scenes that we see in the New Testament with respect to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sets, where he is enthroned. And he's not setting this tweedling his thumbs. No, he is enthroned on high where he is ruling, exercising his kingship and exercising his judgment even today. And since the Lord rules and reigns in righteousness, and He judges in righteousness, He is a refuge for those who are in need, as we see in verse 9. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed. And what a wonderful word that we see that is in this psalm and recurs throughout the psalm. That God is a refuge for His people. That when we need to find safety, when we need to find protection, that we can find it in the Lord, in the context of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so this description of God as a refuge means a place of safety and security. And it is especially in times of trouble that God is a refuge. As we see how it's, it's brought out here in this text in verse 10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And so God is a refuge for those people who need him. And and God is a refuge for those in a time of of trouble. It's qualifying. It is only for those who know and trust in him. They know the name, meaning they know him covenantly. They know God relationally. It's not that they just know facts about God. It's that they know God. And knowing God in this word also means knowing who he is as he is revealed in his Word. God as a refuge doesn't just happen abstractly in the sense that you are in a time of trouble. Now, all of a sudden, God is your refuge. But it happens in the context of a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you go deeper in your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then it becomes obvious that he is that refuge for you, he's that safety, he is that protection for you in times when you need him. Now, the addition of trust with those who, who know God speaks of God encompassing all that you are. So when we think, we see how this text speaks about those not only who know your name, but they put trust in you, that says that they see God as their everything. God is the center of all things in their life. That it's not that they need other things to help them in their times of trouble, but that they know they need God and God alone. And their time of trouble. That it's only God who gives them strength. It's only God who gives them the endurance that they need. And those who seek God is another way of saying that they know and trust him. And they are not forsaken by God. That's, that's an important truth for us to remember in times of trouble. Because it's usually in those times where we feel as though God is forsaken. In fact, we're going to see next, next week, as the psalm starts off in Psalm 10, where the psalmist says, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? But God is not afar off. God does not forsake his people. In fact, that's the promise that Jesus made to his disciples before he left this world. And it's a promise that's extended to us, where he says, I will never leave you. I am always with you even until the end of the ages. And so wherever you go, in the context of your life, you can know that God will not forsake you and that he is there with you. Now, the the choice of the verbs forsaking is really an understatement because it means that he will gloriously deliver them. It is chosen because in times of trouble, it may have seemed like God had abandoned them, but those who know him know that it's not true. And they continue to make their refuge, waiting for the great deliverance in Jesus yet to come. And and knowing this truth leads the psalmist in verses 11 through 12 to sing to the God who does not abandon his people. So look in verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. The praise of the godly rise out of the conviction that God cares. That God is a refuge for them. That God will not forsake them. And the word sing is repeated from verse 1, but now so as an imperative. So the way that it was used back in verse 1 The the psalmist is determined that he's going to sing. He's calling himself to sing. He's digging within him to sing praises to God. But now as he begins to ponder the truth of God, the fact that God has judged his enemy, that God will judge his enemies to come, the truth that God is a refuge for him, that God will not forsake him, now the psalmist is calling everybody around him to sing praises. To God. So I think it's an important thing for us to just take time and, and pause here to think about the nature of singing. Like why isn't it that the psalmist just you know, say these things or, or pray these things? Because there's some things, there's some truths about God that need to be sung, that need to be put out there in, in a rhythm, in a meter. It's just like this swelling of emotions that's coming out. And he's got to do more than just say it. He has to sing it to God. And not only is the psalmist wanting to sing, he's saying everybody's going to have to sing. If you're going to be around me right now, you're going to sing. Because our God is great. So earlier the psalmist was exhorting himself to sing. Now he is calling for all the sing praises to God. As as he ponders the truth of the fact that God is his refuge and he will not forsake him, notice the nearness of God in these verses. Where does God dwell? Earlier in this psalmist, he speaks about how God is enthroned. And so we think about God being enthroned, sitting in the heavens. But now in verse 11, he who dwells in Zion, not spiritual Zion, but a physical place, Jerusalem. Zion is God's earthly city. The temple was there. This is where God's earthly throne was. So he's not a God who dwells far from his people, but he is a God who is near him, near them. And not only is God near, but we also find in verse 12 that he also acts on their behalf. You just have to think about the truth of what it meant for the people in the Old Testament, especially in Jerusalem where the tabernacle was there or the temple was there, that when they walked around that city, they saw that tabernacle or they saw that temple and they reminded the truth that God's in the middle of this city. And so for David, that brought him a lot of comfort to know that. That God's not just dwelling somewhere up there away from me. But God is dwelling somewhere near to me. Actually, not somewhere near, but someplace I can go. Someplace that I can see. There God is dwelling in his temple. And that's why for him, there was nowhere he would rather be than in the temple of the Lord. Because that's where God was. And then this scene of praises, it moves from to a prayer for help. The psalmists are, the psalms are sometimes somewhat difficult to really grab a hold of structurally. And I was having this conversation with a friend of mine who preached through psalms and asked him, Is it ever difficult to really kind of grab a hold of the structure of, of psalms? It's almost like trying to grab a hold of a chainsaw. Because it's just, it's like this. I mean, here we are, he's singing praises, he's calling God to sing praises to him. Now all of a sudden, he's, it's a prayer for help. The, the Psalms are very emotional. And that's one of the reasons why I think the Psalms is important for people to, uh, to read, because that's how life is. One day you're singing praises to God, and it's just coming naturally, and the next day you find yourself full of lament. It's hard to even focus on reading the Bible, because you're so distraught by whatever's going on in your life. And so it really gives us a true picture of what life is. So here he goes from seeming the praises of God, and now he's praying, God, help me. God, help me. So look with me in verses 13 through 14. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. That seems like a far cry from verses 11 through 12, doesn't it? You know, He's praising God. Now all of a sudden his mind is wondered, and now I have people who hate me. So, Lord, help me. You who lift me up from the gates of death. So now he's thinking about death. Those who hate me, they wish harm on me. They wish ill on me. They wish I was dead. He says, so have mercy on me. And then in verse 14, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. So the nature of the psalm now turns from a song of victory to an earnest prayer for God's gracious intervention. The previous threat that we found in verses 3 and 4 makes it clear, or really verses 3 through 6, it makes it clear that others are yet to come. These coming threats are deadly, yet God will continue to protect his people. So the psalmist asked for God to replace the gates of death for the gates of Zion. And the reason that he asked the Lord to replace the gates of death is so that he will praise God. Now this is similar to the rhetorical question that's asked in Psalm 6 and verse 5. When the psalmist is pleading for God to help him and he feels like death is right around the corner and he's pleading with God saying, God, if you don't help me, then I'm going to die. And if I'm dead, he will give thanks. Because you know, death focuses kind of a finality. It's not that the psalmist didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, but it's just that the psalmist sees death as we all see it, that it's there, and there's a sense of finality, and we're passed away. But his focus here, that even in this context of pleading for help, is he still wants to praise God. And then verses 15 through 18, it speaks about the judgment of the the wicked again. So look with me in verse 15. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, And their net, which they hid in their own foot, is caught. The Lord is known by judgment. He executes. The the wicked is snared by the work of his own hands. Meditation. Some of you may actually have the word that's um, transliterated, Higion. Then you have the word Selah. So these are musical notations. Then verse 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten the expectation of the poor, shall perish forever. So the following four, voice, four verses are to be understood as the content of this praise the psalm that spoke in verse 14. This is so because of the apparent musical notation that I just mentioned, uh, Higion, or as mine translates it, uh, meditation and Selah. The nature of judgment that is meted out is the enemy's own making. That's what we find here in this text. They fall into traps they have dug and are even caught in the very net they arrange to snare others. This is the sort of they reap what they sow. Because God is just, evil return to the head of the evildoer. God is able to to turn their devices back on them so that they will perish by their own hand. And a classic example of this is Haman in the book of Esther who made gallows for Mordecai to be hung on. And the varying gallows that he made for someone else to be hung on were the gallows that him and all of his family were hung on. And through this reversal, the Lord hath made himself known. By executing justice in this way, God will reveal himself as the one who sets things right. He destroys the wicked by their own devices and rescues the righteous from those devices. What is important is that the wicked are snared in the work of his hands. He destroys himself by trying to destroy others. And this is divine justice at work. This is the uniqueness and this is the power of how God works. That God allows justice to be turned back on them. He uses their own devices, their own plans to bring about their demise. In fact, we find this how this develops in salvation history with respect to the Lord Jesus Christ. The devices and snares of Jesus' enemies, the religious leaders, and ultimately Satan, were laid, were laid to see him killed. So throughout the Gospels, the, the religious leaders, they were looking for ways to trap Jesus up. And to get him caught up in all these snares. But it was those varying devices and snares that led to Jesus' death which affected salvation in life for all who repent and believe on Jesus. In fact, listen to what Peter preached at the day of Pentecost. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. So they used these snares and they devised these traps so that they can nail him to a cross and kill him. But what did God do with that? God raised him up ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. The divine reversal in God's glorious judgment is the focus of verses 17 through 18. The wicked, the wicked nations, the supposed rulers and kings, forget God, but they themselves will be forgotten. God's people, on the other hand, will not be forgotten. And we... As God's people, we dwell in this, in a sense of uh, an anemone. Nobody knows who we are. Nobody knows anything about the first rule of Baptist Church. Nobody knows about the contributions that we're making to the advances of the kingdom of God. But we are not forgotten. God knows us. God knows you. And one of these days, his enemies, those people who have gone down in history of some great people, they will be forgotten. Their names will be blotted out, but God's people will be known by him, by their name forever. And the last part we see here in verses 19 through 20, the prayer for divine judgment. Arise, O Lord, do not let men prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Isn't that what the nations need to know? Isn't that what people need to know more than anything in all this world, especially people that are the supposed power brokers of our nation, of various nations? They need to know that they are nothing but mere mortal, frail, weak men. So The last two verses are the prayer of the psalmist for God's judgment to intersect with the oppressor. There is a call to action for God to rise from his throne and to strike the enemies. And there is an emphasis that's carried over from Psalm 8 with respect to the usage of the word man. So if you'll notice there in verse 19, arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Remember how the psalmist, he used that. What is man that you are mindful of? him? He understood that he was mere, mortal, frail man. This is contrasted with how people who do not know Christ, who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, who pursue their own life, they don't see themselves in this way. The psalmist saw himself as nothing but frail man. The psalmist is now calling God to not let man prevail. So in this text, the reference to man refers to the enemy, the same word that David uses, which emphasizes mere men, mortal, or frail, as used here. But the man, in verses 19 through 20, sees himself not in weakness and humility before God, but pride and strength. And the enemies demonstrate their pride and strength by oppressing the weak. In other words, oppressing God's people. So David calls for God to strike them with terror so that they know that they are nothing but frail, weak men. When the Lord Jesus comes in glory and power, he will strike the hearts of all of his enemies with terror, and they will know on that day that they are nothing but children of the dust. There are two ways that this psalm can be directed to our life. Now, after hearing this psalm, you may be confronted with the fact that you will be judged. God is a God of judgment, and he will judge those who are not his own who are not in a covenant relationship with Him through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is a God of judgment. And so may God do something to you today. May He strike fear in your heart. May you recognize that you will be judged. May He strike fear so that you will humble yourselves and repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a follower of the Lord Jesus you can find trust in God through Christ is deepened by knowing that He will judge. That whatever God does, as far as His judgment, He will judge with righteousness, with equity, and it will be absolutely right. And we—it's hard for us to conceive that that kind of concept because we know that even in the context of our country, that the judgments that are ruled are sometimes wrong. Or judgments that we give, judgments that we might make on people, that they're wrong. But when God makes a judgment, His judgment is absolutely right. And God will judge all evil people. He will judge the nations who seek to reject Him, who seek to oppress His people. God will judge them. In this psalm there is praise. To God for his judgment and when the Lord Jesus comes again to strike the nations he will be praised forever because he hath judged righteously and one of the things that we can look forward to as far as God's judgment God will judge sin and death and Satan forever and we will enter in to his glorious kingdom and serve and praise the one who is a great judge